Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, a paleolimnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. And as always, we are your hosts, myself, Adam Jaziorski, joined as always by Josh Steenbunt. Thanks for coming back and checking out the episode today. So here we are once again. What do you want to talk about? I mean, in all honesty, it's been a little while since we recorded the last one, it seems, and I don't even remember where we are. We're in this arc of contagious ideas. Uh, and we've, the last couple of episodes talked about popular paleolimnology and a little bit about paleolimnology in the news. Um, so yeah, where do we go from there? Uh, we went from paleo in the news into, um, just environment, the history of environmental activism. Yep. And so that's kind of the awakening or what the general timelines were of, um, just the environmental movement in general. Um, and today in terms of if the arc is contagious ideas, uh, so building on environmental activism and that transition from nature as being something to be subjugated versus to be something to protect and enjoy slash enjoyed here, we're going to do contagious ideas slightly differently, but in terms of, um, you know, the goal of many scientists out there, how do you get your ideas to be contagious? Well, what does it mean? You know, and so looking at, you know, getting people excited about your work and citing your work. So the publish or perish uh, argument of, of modern science, but not just to publish them, but to write papers and come up with ideas and projects that are going to be of use uh, and interest to a wide range of audiences. Yeah, because I think... I push back a little bit on that publish or perish kind of thing because really um, it's not enough to just publish a paper. It's, the goal is to publish a paper that people actually read. Oh, which yeah. For apparently sure. is not the case uh, by and large, as we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and I think I knew uh, something about this in terms of you know what the average citation rate of papers writ large is. But uh, um, spoiler alert. It's low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lower than I thought it would be uh, yeah. going into it. I'm not surprised it, it's low, but it, it's much lower than you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, but on the other side of that, there are some papers, and we can kind of get into a little bit of what might cause that to be the case, that are just, uh, you know, that hit above their weight and much above the average for uh, a given paper that are historically significant, whatever you want to call them, seminal, highly cited, whether those things are all the same or not. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think, well, I get when we get into that, that it, that's not actually true. There are differences, and I think there's a difference between a historically significant paper, someone's seminal work that is associated with them in a big way, and a, a very highly cited paper. But I agree, yeah. As we're, uh, you know, in the world of, you know, everything being measured in the 21st century. The, one of the easiest things to be measured about how impactful a paper or a journal or an author themselves is, is uh, that can be measured as citations. So that's that's where we're going. That's where we're, and we're starting with today. Let's do it. Not going to break any new ground at all. We're just going to nope. go, we're going to, you know. Look. We had some scrolling <laughs> through Google Scholar and Web of Science and 
came up with some conclusions. You know, the path well trodden. How, yeah. Well trodden. How how do you uh, measure how good a science piece of work is? How often is it cited? And that's our uh, starting point for today. And um, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, one, you know, looking up, uh, you know, different measures of citation impact and stuff like that. Uh, there was a neat little, like it was only like a minute and a half little infographic video-y thing on uh, nature, uh, like nature.com. Um, and it brought, had a couple of neat facts in it. So this is based on a 2014 analysis of the Web of Science database. And a couple of key things that, you know, that really struck me in that is one, if you look at all the papers in there, you're going back over 100 years, and if you printed out one page of each one to kind of identify how many papers you have, the stack would be as tall as Mount Kilimanjaro, just about. Huh. There's a lot of papers. There's yeah. a lot of papers. And it's not even that's a lot of papers. That's a lot of first pages of papers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 2014, like six years since then, the number of papers published annually, not physically be. printed, but is accelerating probably almost exponentially. There's so many new journals. There's so much open access publication. There's so much uh, science being done and published that that number is is massive. We've well passed Kilimanjaro now. Oh, oh easily. It's got to be on like a near exponential kind of growth. Yeah. Um, but, you know, does that matter? Because they also pointed out that, you know, in that Kilimanjaro stack, there's a half Kilimanjaro stack of papers that have either never been cited at all or cited only once. So it's just thrown out into the ether and no one cared. Because that one citation, you know, if a paper's only cited once, it's probably a self-citation. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like so, a follow-up paper, you know, is what I meant by self-citation. So, um, so that's that. That's crazy. But like, I think I knew that for some reason. I remember being hearing a long time ago, and this may, you know, just the mist of time. But being told that the average papers, the average paper is cited twice. But, um, but it's definitely a uh, highly skewed distribution. Yeah, and and highly skewed it is indeed so talking about the most cited uh, publication of all time uh was a paper in 1951 it's a methods paper on measuring protein uh content in a solution and how many publications did that one have on it citations uh oh, so, sorry how many citations in 2014 it, it had over 300,000 which is quite more than zero or one. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a, you know, fundamental methods paper for many branches of chemistry, biochemistry, biology. And it's like the go to, this is how we measured how much protein was in our slop. 300,000 plus uh, yeah. citations. It's been out 70 years. It's a good run. Yeah. That's a good run for sure. And, and you can track in, um, in different metrics, you can track how and when these citations occurred. And it's been, you know, there was a bump not long after it was published, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, but this has been going on. It's not uh, something that's ebbed and flowed. It has been uh, a well-cited paper pretty much continuously for the, those 70 years. So pretty impressive, the number that can be uh, that can be clocked up by some of these um, highly cited 
seminal uh, and historically significant papers. That might be one that's all three of them. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, I was not familiar with it, so. How, <laughs> how My historically significant can it be? Can it really be? Um, but there are some that we then dove into. Yeah. That do classify into all of those three different yeah, categories. It's like one of those, like, what was the line? You know, none of them have ever been in my kitchen kind of <laughs> the chairs reference. Um, but uh, yeah, so then we dived into Google Scholar Rome for just doing a couple of comparisons. So I don't know anything about measuring protein concentrations and solutions. So we, you know, but thinking that 1950 was a starting point, we decided to push it back a bit further. And so we looked up uh, uh, on the origin of species which was published in 1859, but I will point out that the Google Scholar account had no verified email address, so it might be bullshit. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway. <clears throat> we'll just assume that this is accurate. This was the C. Darwin, whoever that was, uh, did publish this book in 1859. Uh, and it had 52,000 citations uh, yeah. as accounted for in Google Scholar and We'll talk about some of the differences in metrics later, uh, which is pretty good. Pretty good I, number. Yeah, I've never cited the origin of species. I don't know. If I, you have. I have not, but I, I have heard of it. Yeah, and, and I, I have, have two copies copy on the shelves I've got behind one, me, and I have definitely flipped through it a couple times. I've read it cover to cover. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, okay, and so then we continued our like journey of like racking our brains of what else would be quote-unquote, seminal work. So we looked up Albert Einstein, and I'm not familiar with... The, verified email for Einstein? I don't think there was a I don't, verified I don't email so. for Einstein. No. So again, take this with a grain of salt. Um, so his most cited work, I don't remember what the title of it was. It was not... Definitely didn't... It was something with uh, quantum theory. It didn't, An early... It was, it was relatively... 1935, so yeah. not not super, like towards the tail end of his career, I think. But it wasn't related to, I was expecting it to be either something associated with special relativity or general relativity, and it uh, may be, but it wasn't in the title at least. So uh, less than half, so 20,000 citations for Albert Einstein's most cited work. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a like a paper. It, it was an actual paper, paper instead of a book, <clears throat> so which... Probably counts for a lot because you know there's there only many. one origin of species, but there are probably a number of similar Einstein uh, articles oh. that. Yeah. Oh, I, um, I was thinking more in terms of because it's a book. The Origin of Species covers a lot more stuff, so it can be oh, cited for, sure. for a lot yep. more reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and then third on our list in terms of okay, real seminal work to biology. This is the one that came to my mind first, actually. Yeah, I don't know about you. Uh, I don't remember what the order was, probably. Uh, and it is mentioned, well, it's mentioned in the little uh, info uh, minute The nature thing. article. Yeah. Uh, is Watson Crick's 1953 paper um, informing the world that DNA has a double helix structure from 1953. And I was actually shocked that it was uh, significantly lower. So only, you know, not only, but... But 14,000 citations for a paper that, you know, whenever... Many people are familiar with yeah, the concept like when, of. Yeah, even when you're, you know, in like grade school, before you were split off into actual biology, you're still taking science. Um, it's the kind of thing that's covered. Yeah. And uh, um, so it 
gets what one one twentieth the number of citations of the protein paper. Yep, that's crazy. Interesting. Yeah, and this uh, led into a couple of follow up questions that we decided to do on our uh, um, database dives, but. Questions came to mind. So then, do seminal papers tend to have large author lists? Obviously, Watson and Crick has two authors on it. Yeah. And that is controversial um, yeah. in terms of who's no left kidding. out. Yeah. Um, the Origin of Species, one author. Um, um, I don't remember the Einstein's work. I think it was a single. Was. Yeah. Um, but, you know. Did the mega papers where you see a hundred, you know, every now and then there'll be like a nature paper that has like a colossal or science yeah. paper, the colossal, like some massive effort of like ocean fertilization has a huge number of angles in um, those seminal papers. Um, you know, in general, you would assume like, again, the protein paper mentioned methods, papers, books, and reviews that kind of summarize, you know, uh, subdiscipline up to a certain point seem to be well cited. Um, but, uh, yeah, we decided to explore this a little more, but from a quote unquote paleolimnology perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to get a, a handle on some of the trends of, uh, if, if they exist of, uh, what these kind of seminal and really well-cited papers look like and how they come to be maybe in some cases. And, and I'm sure it's something that's changed over time. I mean, Darwin writing this book or Einstein writing his theories, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't be working on those individually currently, but you might not have a hundred authors. It might be a small list. Uh, it might be only a couple authors. Uh, and that might, you know, you wouldn't see this trend of really large author lists. And, um, yeah. And I guess before we go any further, we just mentioned we're talking about citations, specifically citations on Google scholar. So it's all heavily automated, you know, to yeah. the number, the numbers, um, should be taken with a grain of salt. And there's all, you know, and that's completely sidestepping all the potential issues that you get with the whole uh, approach of distilling things down to a single metric. Um, Just in general, yeah. In general. Um, but citations tie into other things like H score, which, uh, again, while we're doing some of the prep for this, I was shocked to, well, not shocked, but kind of mildly surprised to see it had only been around since it was only proposed in 2005 as a way of uh evaluating scientific impact um and for those that are not familiar h score is um if you have an h score of let's say 10 you have 10 papers that are at least 10 citations yep i don't know how to define it the other way around but that's that's that it gets in an applied done. sense yeah and it, and it can be over a certain time period. So in Google, by default, it'll give you your H index or H score for the last five years or something like that. And then your whole body of literature. So you can compare and see how your yeah. recent papers have been yeah. cited. And so the general idea of those of the H score is to um, um, reduce the impact of like your, if you have one or two big papers. And, you know, just evaluate your body of work on a mean yeah. kind of level. Um, this, and then you also have impact factors, which is like the mean number of citations a particular journal may have. Um, so there are a bunch of different metrics, but we're just, just to keep things simple, looking only at number of citations. So what do we do then, Josh? 
when we started looking at profiles? Well, uh, with the goal of trying to focus on paleolimnologists, uh, we had to come up with an idea of perhaps who we might want to look at. And, and the obvious answers are to kind of pick some of the more senior people in the field that have a larger number of um, publications. So you can see where they may have some of these. Uh, and we thought, you know, a few names obviously jump out, people we know quite well. And then we thought it might be interesting to be it a little more systematic and compare some of the well-known, more senior paleolimnologists. So we decided to take a few of the, um, I don't know how to say it, but uh, the academic bodies, uh, societies that we've talked about and or journals and look at the leadership over time at those places. So we looked at the people who have been the uh, president of the International Paleolimnology Association. Uh, and to date, that has been uh, Rick Batterby, John Small, and Helen Benyon, who is the current president. And then we went to the Journal of Paleolimnology and looked at the people who have been the editors of that journal, the editors-in-chief of that journal. Uh, so John Small, again, so we won't talk about him twice. Just assume he's in both categories. We won't talk about any of them in specifics, but this is just um, what informed, this became the starting point. And then Mark Brenner and Tom Whitmore, who are the current editors-in-chief. Basically to not look at any of their papers in particular, but to pull out some of these trends in that we've been talking about so far. And just to get outside of our own bubble. So like clicking on, it just became a bit of a clicking exercise of then clicking on co-authors and co-authors of co-authors and co-authors of co-authors of co-authors, just to get a sense of what is out there in different, I don't know what you, different branches of the paleolimnology um, family, I guess. Um, and just to get a sense of, so, you know, 305,000 is the absolute top bar number of any paper. Um, 52,000 is Darwin's best. 20,000 is Einstein's best. And then uh, Watson and Crick is 14,000. And just to go, okay, um, what? And then because this is a thing that comes up, and up again and again um, when you're looking into citations is it's all highly field specific. Um, Very much just so. some. And you can't really compare any of these measures, like a quantum mechanics paper versus a psychology paper versus um, just because the number of papers produced, the number of people reading them, the num you know the way that work is used, you know, in subsequent papers, like it just differs so much between fields. So we just wanted to do a big overview of uh, paleo um, to get a sense of okay within our subdiscipline. What is big? Yeah, and that's I mean, that's a, uh, a consideration for all of these kind of comparisons. Even impact factor, which is inherently about comparing journals, is not really meant to compare between different disciplines. You don't compare the impact factor of JOPL to the impact factor of a clinical psychology journal. They're meant to be compared within field kind of uh to look at how different journals work. And this would be the same. So we can't be comparing our biochemistry colleagues to, uh, to paleolimnologists, to geologists, to um, economists. But it does give us something to work 
with and as a good starting place. Um, and so going through all of those people, we're not going to give any specific kind of details about people's, you can go and look at their Google scholar pages or, or you can go and look at web of science where you get very different results. Um, what did we find as a sort of top end, uh, of these folks here? Well, for the top end, um, of papers, well, I think we would, we'll, uh, I think we should give one specific Okay, we'll give one specific. The the highest of these six people, uh, five people, sorry, yeah. John's twice, uh, the most cited publication that we found uh, was by Mark Brenner. Uh, in an, it's a nature paper, I can't remember the year, uh, related to the decline of Mayan civilization in, uh, in Central America. Uh, and it was just around 1,000, or it was exactly 1,000. It was right on 1,000. What a great so number, was, round number. Yeah. And so it was the only uh, quadruple digit um, paper that we that we were able to find in in this little uh, study, which was kind for of these people, like for these people, right on the cusp, for these people. Um, and then the so that was like the highest manuscript or like scientific article level number, but there was one that was much much higher. Yeah. And we just found this by linking through to, you know, this person co-authored this paper with this person uh, and found uh, one paleolimnologist who, who we know. Because okay, some of the books were higher. I oh, think I think there may be some books that were a little bit higher, but of articles. I should say, yes, I guess we need to put a caveat. Uh, there were a couple of books that were um, in, had over a thousand citations. But we were, but again, if you've got a 32 chapter book, it can be cited for a lot of sure. different reasons. So we kind of threw those out in terms of just looking for the individual studies, what would be a very highly cited study. And so we only found one with thousand, with a thousand citations. Um, but then in terms of, again, you're running into multiple chapters and lots of angles to come at it. But uh, um, apparently um, being an author in an IPCC report, uh, International Panel of Climate Change report, um, they get cited a lot. They do, very much so. So the highest number we saw in all of our comparisons, so Adam's right there in that 1,000 was the highest of these people for papers. There were a few books among these authors and other people that we saw that had higher citation numbers than that. But the highest single number was 8,000 citations, for the, I think it was the fourth uh, IPCC working group assessment report, um, which came out in 2000, I think fourth one is 2016 report. Uh, so that was the highest number we saw. That was the closest we saw getting towards those Watson and Crick and other kind of numbers associated with those really, really big papers. So becoming an author on these massive uh, summary projects like the IPCC is a, a good way to really boost your citation numbers if you can do it although ironically not your h index no very true unless you're having multiple eight thousands uh um <laughs> eight thousand uh citation things kicking around yeah it's only ever gonna but be anyway, that one paper um so then i kind of like beg the question of okay you know so if there's only we're only able to find one actual scientific article with, a, you know, a thousand citations. What would be a good cutoff for a high impact paleolimnology paper? And that's a challenging thing to uh, to come up with. 
Uh, so we hummed and hawed a little bit over our criterion for that and uh, then made it an entirely arbitrary decision. <laughs> and uh, All arrived, these decisions are arbitrary. <laughs> and arrived at uh, 250 as being a good cutoff or a good marker for a highly cited paleolimnology paper, like a very highly cited paleolimnology paper. Yeah, it's um, a very sensible cutoff. My, it is a very sensible opinion. cutoff. Why would that be, Adam? No reason. No reason at because all. Because Adam has one that uh, would therefore be considered highly cited in the paleolimnology framework we've just established. And Josh isn't even close. <laughs> I don't make. I don't make the rules. <laughs> oh wait, yes I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, but so that seemed. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting because I, you know. Uh, I was not aware that I had that many citations. I guess I had not looked at it in a in a while, but I knew knew it was up around at least two hundred or so. But I until we did this exercise, I didn't have any sense of how high is high, and um, yeah, I think uh, um, two fifty is a fairly rarefied it's a subset high bar. of yeah. the uh, of what is out there for sure. It's a pretty high number. Um, like I, I doubt that I, I'm not positive that any of my current papers will ever get that high. Uh, I think it would take a different paper that's you know has all of the things that make it highly citable uh, in order for that to come about. So, um, so which is interesting. It's interesting to see, uh, and even amongst the those list of people who we were talking about who, you know, have had long, some of them have very long careers um, in paleoluminology amongst lots and lots of different projects. They don't really have that many that break that barrier uh, either. No, it's uh, fairly. Individual, of any of them, which is, I found really interesting uh, and in that, you know, they're this great body of work that they've all done is made up of, you know, a couple of papers that might be highly cited, uh, but most of it is is the same as everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I guess I guess when we're looking through the list, it's highly highly influenced by the books uh, in terms of the top of the citation list. But I, it was interesting to sometimes see not only what was on the list, but what wasn't on the list, and in terms of papers that you know. I guess in my estimation would have been seminal works, um, but not as highly cited as I would have thought they, or turned out to not be as highly cited as I thought they were, which is, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. And it allows you to kind of start to make some connections and ideas as to how papers become highly cited uh, in in the field and whether that's um, the nature of the, the type of the paper. And I want to say nature as in it being in the journal nature, though that can certainly help you a little bit uh, or more related to um, the project that the, the paper is associated with. And, and, you know, there's some interesting kind of conclusions that you might be able to start to draw based on, on those. But yeah, an interesting take home that they're less common than you might imagine and papers that you, you might know really well. Like there are some papers in the literature that I think about quite regularly, um, 
as as being really important paleolimnology papers. And they may not have that many citations. It doesn't mean they're not great papers. It's just interesting how citations work. Yeah. And and just to finish, sorry, uh, a good example of why it's not the best metric for saying, you know, the quality of a paper or the longevity or the long-term value of that paper. Um, yeah, because then when you have this kind of metric, um, um, we also looked into Web of Science a little bit and noticed that there's a, a real disparity between these numbers. Like the Google Scholar number was uh, usually higher than the Web of Science citation number for any given paper that we looked at, um, but not systematically higher. It seemed to be, I mean, there's some, these are massive online databases and some include, you know, they're databases of databases basically and whatever subset they cover um, is not totally comparable. So then yeah. it's like, what is the real number becomes a question. Like on the one hand, does it really matter? Um, but, in, you know, like, I don't think the, there is an official number out there. No, I think that's a, a really important take home as well. And so some people may not be familiar with web of, people are probably familiar with web of science as a search portal, but some listeners may not know exactly what the difference is. And very basically that's a searching kind of system that's run by, I'm not sure if it's still called Thompson Scientific or, you know, one of the big publishing houses. Anyway, they only index a certain series of journals. Not every journal that's published is indexed in the Web of Science or the Thompson Citation Index, which is kind of where impact factor was uh, developed. Uh, and because of that, those numbers are almost always going to be lower because they're only looking at a certain set of papers. So that great thousand citation paper of uh, Mark Brenner's in Nature, which is a journal that's obviously cited in the, in the Web of Science, has a thousand citations on Google Scholar, but it's quite a bit lower than that on uh, the Thompson or on the Web of Science because it's not including perhaps open access papers that are citing, uh, open access journals that are citing that. Uh, and it's only including citations in other indexed papers or uh, indexed journals. So an interesting kind of, and this is a, a private company that does all of this sort of thing. So it's an interesting kind of... Uh, well, they're both private companies. Well, true. Okay, fair enough. But um, I mean, uh, in the way that, in the way that journals kind of work to be indexed in the Web of Science uh, directory, because it, it kind of that's how an impact factor is established for a journal, uh, is a, a part of publishing. That's a, a weird thing. I don't really pretend to understand. I know absolutely zero about. But then. You know, when you start thinking about okay, what is the real number? You can go, you can go deeper. It's like, what proportion mm -hmm. of the citations are actually valid? And I think this is uh, something that we've both encountered. It's like, you know, when you get an email alert, because you can set them up. It's like when someone cites your paper, and so you can follow it up and go, oh, okay. Um, uh, and then, you know, you find in some cases it's just going to be a single sentence somewhere in a paper and, you know, it can be miscited or it cannot be quite right where you read the sentence and it's like, da 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 you know, theme plan at all, jet zero scale, whatever it is. Um, and you're like, you know what? 
that's not really what that paper said. It's close, but it's yeah. kind of overstating a little bit. And um, or or it's something you wrote that like was in the introduction of your paper that you're referring to something else and not really the conclusion. So like, is that? I don't know that that's the best reference <laughs> you know, for that sentence. You know, it's not wrong. But just like that's in there, you, should, you know, and this this becomes a thing that really gets hammered, um, uh, you know, at the when you're a TA, I guess you do a lot of this where um, no, you got to dig deeper. Don't don't cite them as the source of, you know, let's say the uh, measurement of protein concentrations was not, yeah. you know, somebody's PhD thesis, or it may have been, but you got to go back and cite that 1951 paper kind of thing. And it's always the unlucky undergraduate student who picks to write their paper on the topic that the TA or the professor know really, really well and got up their, uh, their literature uh, review is going to be looked at a little bit more carefully than, than some of the other topics. Yeah. It's a, it's a double-edged sword though. It's like, oh, you know, it's one of those things that, oh, you're interested in this stuff. Excellent. You know? Oh yeah. <laughs> My, uh, river's, uh, river processes students. Uh, every year, one of them picks to study the kind of changes in the lower Mackenzie, like down in the Mackenzie Delta area. And, you know, they get more help, but they also get a finer tooth comb. <laughs> Less stuff is allowed to slide. Yeah. But no, it is, that is a good point in that, uh, it, it's obviously very, not very common, but it does happen that papers are, uh, cited, when that might not be the the best citation, it might be that uh, another paper would would do better, or because you know you're you're not citing the conclusions of the paper or the results of your paper. And I imagine that as you get to a point where papers become better and better cited, uh, that can increase a little bit more because they often you know you often will rank citation or search engine results by citation number in some cases, or at least you have the option to do that. And a paper that's been cited lots and lots of times, you know, inherently some people may think, oh, that, that's a good citation. I'll use that as well for this sentence. And then they can kind of build up citations that uh, may not be the direct conclusions of that paper. Just another another example of the rich getting richer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if academic publishing can be called the rich getting richer. Well, yeah. It's a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The journals probably are so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so that, and so that was one of the, one of the take homes of this little exercise. I thought thought was really interesting. Of like, you know, it's all about numbers and what is the real number? Who knows? No one knows what the real number is. So you just kind of same as you just have to compare within disciplines. It's like within databases, basically. Yeah, and and we talked about you know I think. Um, the web of science or the Thompson number is probably, I keep saying Thompson. I, I it's probably not. I don't think, I don't anyway, think it is. Yeah, just, I'm sure not. Um, is probably at the lower end. The Google number is probably at the higher end. Cause as you get to a paper that's cited more and more, there's probably multiple, you know, entries of the same paper being cited in, in that. And I imagine that's, those are kind of the two bounds of the number of citations for an article in, in my kind of guessing. Yeah. It's probably somewhere in between those two. Yeah. Uh, and then going on from that, what are some of the other conclusions that we sort of pulled out? 
of uh, of this other than it really depends what you're looking at is the number of citations and many of those may not be perfect uh, yeah. what are some of the other things you thought about one, one thing that really jumped out at me was that um uh some big projects um don't necessarily produce very highly cited papers because and it makes total sense to me now, but I was kind of surprised. It wasn't until um, we were like looking at citation counts that it was like, ah, kind of uh, came together. Um, because, and we are using the example of the uh, Perla study from the uh, 1980s looking at acidification in North America. We're like, kind of like, why is this not on any of the, why are these papers not on any of these lists? Because there's multiple papers that were produced by the Perla. So these big, multi-PI projects, um, you know, their impact is diffused over multiple papers, which are looking at the problem through a whole pile of lenses. And so, you know, in hindsight, it's obvious, but I I still find that kind of surprising. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Me too. You know, I would have thought that, you know, there would be one seminal or highly cited paper from this big acidification project, whether it be Perla or the SWAP project in Europe. Uh, But it doesn't seem to be the case. There are ones that are higher than others, obviously. But it is a little more diffuse in that there was so much research done in a fairly short amount of time for some of these projects that each of them is taking a little piece of that citation uh, citation work because some of them are, you know, related to the impacts on or studying with diatoms versus studying with other indicators, more summary papers, there's method papers in there. There's little bits of each of these projects that individually are working on their building up citations. But there's not that one huge number because it's diffused. Yeah, because in many ways, these type of papers are chapters of a book, but no one is actually looking at it as a complete body of work. Um, And so if it was The Origin of Species with I don't know how many chapters it has. um, But the whole point is if you're looking at finches or you're looking at one of the other organisms, you always go to The Origin of Species. And no one's citing the Perla project. They're citing a particular paper that was came out of the Perla project. Yeah. And there um, may be, or, you know, there may be end up being reviews of these big projects. Well, some of them have multiple reviews. Um, but often, rightly so, when you're trying to cite data, you're going to the original source. You might read that review paper and from there find that this is the paper that published the initial chrysophyte data or et cetera. So it kind of shows that for those projects, the, the way in which citations are kind of supposed to work is kind of working. The individual papers are being cited for what they showed uh, as opposed to the whole project individually. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just something that I was surprising. And then another thing that I kind of gleaned uh, just going over all these lists was that uh, um, Arctic papers seem to be highly cited. And again, um, that's where the cool kids work. Uh, I have never done any work in the Arctic. Um, but because uh, they're widely applicable when you're talking about climate impacts as like canaries in the coal mines, you know, examples. And so like it just kind of really struck me as, um, you know, we didn't look at it in, in the um, uh, uh, reference list in detail. But, you know, you could very well expect that um, – you know, a paper looking at the decline of the Mayan civilization could um, cite an Arctic paper 
as an example of uh, climate change because that's you know or in somewhere in in the background info. But there's probably very few Arctic papers that are citing papers about the decline of the Mayan civilization. Yeah, exactly. They're just broadly applicable conclusions that have either because they have global significance or because they're sort of bellwethers. They're things that are occurring early that you might expect to see in other locations that they just get cited um, for whatever reason. And there's a lot of people doing work actively in the Arctic all over. So I think there are just other groups that might be citing those papers. So that makes sense. And I, I didn't really uh, think about it in the, that reason, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I know the most hindsight 2020 kind of things, but uh, it was just one thing that kind of jumped out and was going down the list and, you know, bouncing on co-authors and all that. And it just always seemed to be, you know, even, even when you don't necessarily think of them, the, the uh, author is like, an Arctic focused individual, you know, there'd be a very highly cited paper with some sort of Arctic connection. Mm -hmm. And they do, there are some bigger author list papers, uh, that are, uh, based on Arctic research. And, and there are good reasons for that. You know, they're expensive projects. They often are bringing in multiple kind of expertise. So a person who may not be an Arctic researcher in their primary focus might have done something for one of these projects and, and it did really well in terms of citations. So yeah, they're interesting. But, you know, if you're looking to game the system, if you're looking to maximize your metrics, really seems uh, becoming involved in an IPCC report is the way to go. Yep. That's like the take home message of That's this whole That's the conclusion. Thing. Yep. If you want that one number that everyone looks at your Google Scholar citation, like, whoa, that 7,000. Uh, it might have to be the IPCC report. You got to get yourself on one of those. Yeah. If you want to have one, one piece of work, yeah. uh, represent like 98% of your total citation count. At least 98. Yep. <laughs> but again, it doesn't help your H index. No. So maybe that's why I was in, invented. <laughs> but no, an interesting, I think this has been, this was fun. I actually enjoyed, uh, diving through all of these and, uh, kind of, finding some of these things that in hindsight, I think that's my, the best take home in that in hindsight, a lot of these things probably make sense and you can come up with good reasons for why the trends are the way they are. But, uh, I, they're a little counterintuitive to what I originally went in thinking. Yeah. And, you know, it may simply be a fact that, uh, citation counts is not something I normally talk about with anyone. True. Um, and someone, you know, it's probably, you know, if we had any listeners, some of them might be going, this is all obvious. What have you guys been talking about this for so long? <laughs> like, you've been talking about this for 40 minutes? <laughs> but, you know, hey. Um, I, no, I, I thought it was genuinely interesting in terms of, you know, just that exercise of, yes, it's a sliding scale. So what is a highly cited paper? And, um, you know, it's interesting that, the, you know, We've said it multiple times over the course of the last 13 episodes, but, you know, it's a subdiscipline. Paleolimnology has this niche, and uh, the bar was actually considerably lower than I thought than, than I thought it would be going in. And, and, that, and that was interesting. Yeah, and I'm not going to go and look because I think I've run out of energy for citation uh, surfing. Uh, but it would be interesting to see a similar kind of set of conclusions for, you know, physiology papers or psychology papers and see what the sort of different disciplines look like in terms of their conclusions that someone else would make. 
So if you have an interest in zooming through those and want to have a look at them, send us a, a tweet and let us know what it might be in another discipline or even a discipline of biology or geography or geology uh, that are linked, but maybe somewhat separate. Because I would imagine like ecology would be quite a bit higher in terms of some of the numbers, just based on the number of practitioners, number of people doing the research. Um, you might find them to be a little bit higher. That's my guess anyway. Yeah, I, I honestly have no idea. Because then on the one hand, you, you think about, you know, someone like the chemistry stuff where, you know, a lot of like, I don't know anything about this at all, but I have known other grad students that are working on papers that are, um, you know, based upon computer simulations. And so the pace of producing papers is so much faster. Um, and, you, you know, you just, I don't even remember. It's just talking about the number of chapters in like a master's thesis or something, or publications out of a master's thesis. And you're like, what? You know, like, it's just like a shockingly high number, like mm -hmm. double digits. And you're like, how's that even possible? And it's just, everything is so different. But then at the same hand, at the same time, you know, if everything, everyone is producing double digit publications out of a master's thesis, like your chances of being lost in yeah. the, the shuffle are just as high. So on some levels is an evening out. I yeah. Think. That's yeah. And that could be, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Interesting to think about though. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. Is that a good place to uh, call it for today? Yeah, I think that could be a, a decent stop. It's a little bit shorter than some of the previous. Uh, we've run a little long on our uh, last couple of episodes. So, uh, no, I think that's a good place to end it for the oh, third installment. The mark of what we're actually in tight. Yeah, exactly. The it's third installment of Contagious Ideas. Uh, and then what are we going to talk about next time? Any kind of, we're going to kind of, Focus a little more on writing a paper, I think, is the idea, right? Yeah, I think the idea is just, so we've been focusing over the last uh, two episodes, it's like getting more and more focused. So, you know, environmentalism is a contagious idea, you know, writing papers is a contagious idea. And then maybe we'll go into the very micro scale of, uh, you know, the some assuming that there may be one or two uh relatively new master students listening to this at some point in the future. Um, so, you know, potentially writing, writing a paper, um, and to getting your own ideas out into the world. Um, and I think we can talk a little bit about both, you know, the daunting prospect of publishing your very first paper for, um, but also a little bit of, you know, some of the things that go into, uh, writing a, higher impact paper where you're aiming potentially higher up the um up the scale of impact factors for whatever that's worth and yeah. what what goes into that and and how do and know. just how they look a little bit different yeah some of the so differences different. you know the difference between writing a paper just you you and your supervisor versus you and you know 12 to 20 other co-authors yeah They're that's just, a big difference a lot of sure. nuance uh, nuance differences that, that we can get into so i think that'd be fun yeah i agree Sounds good. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to catch us, I mentioned Twitter a second ago, if you're mining the citation uh, information, but or anything else, uh, we're at Core Ideas Paleo. Uh, you can catch us by email at uh, Core Ideas Podcast. And um, 
you can check out our show notes. Uh, we'll summarize some of this stuff and link to some of the things that we talked about. Um, and show off Adam's ever-increasing Inkscape skills, his vector <laughs> graphic skills. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, at uh, coreideas.ajezorski.ca. So Ajezorski is spelled A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I. And um, yeah, and we've got a website that summarizes or links to all past episodes and has show notes for all episodes. And uh, we hope people find it useful. And until next time, thanks for listening to us rambling about meaningless numbers and uh, stay safe. And we'll, we'll be back soon. For sure. Take care. Thanks again.